Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out this Wednesday night. Wednesdays are quite unusual days. You don't know what to expect on a Wednesday night. But I know that God is going to bless us right now. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for this time. And right now, God, we pray you would teach us a powerful lesson that we need to understand. Lord, we just thank you for the present blessing. We pray and ask right now for the power of the Spirit to open up the Scriptures, Lord, and give us understanding. Lord, you said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we just thank you now for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Right. Amen. Tonight's sermon is entitled, The Enoch of India. The Enoch of India. I know that tonight's going to be a special message because this is one that God had impressed on my heart some time ago and he brought it back to my mind and he was impressing that this is the things that we need to hear for today. Well, I hope you have your Bible. If you need one, just pull one out of the pew because we're going to be going through the scriptures today. Amen? We've been covering big questions about life, big questions, and today we're going to answer a question about life and death and communion with God. I really believe that this is going to be one. I wonder if we can turn down our mic just a tad bit. Thank you very much. We're going to be learning some interesting things about walking with God, walking with God. You know, it's very interesting. When I was a Hindu, there was something that I had learned in Hindu mythology prior to becoming a Christian. And that was a legend about a flood, a worldwide flood. In fact, what is very interesting is this was a worldwide flood that took place, wiped out the entire world. One man was saved and his family inside a giant fish. So it seemed like a combination between Jonah and Noah, right? But that's what I, I grew up understanding in Hindu mythology, what I was studying out. Very interesting, if you actually take a good look at a variety of cultures, you're just, you'll discover that the flood legend is very prevalent all over the world. Dr. Duane Gish in Dinosaurs by Design says that there are over more than 270 stories about different cultures around the world, about a devastating flood. Although there are varying degrees of accuracy, these legends and stories all contain similarities to aspects of the same historical event. I think there's something else that needs to be noted, and that is that you'll also find in various cultures, not just a worldwide flood story, but you'll find a ziggurat tower structure. You'll find it in Japanese culture, you'll find it in Indian culture, you'll find it in South American culture. And what you begin to discover is that there are certain kinds of patterns that are very consistent through the entire world. Now, why is that? What does the Bible explain about that? Well, right after God had destroyed the world with the flood, there was a tower that was built. Scholars believe it was uh, fairly like a ziggurat structure. One structure built upon another structure, built upon another structure, built upon another structure. And after God confused those languages and people separated and began to adapt to the various environments, they took with them the story of recent history, which was A, a worldwide flood, and B, the story of the Tower of Babel. And that's why you find various versions of this in cultures all over the entire world. In fact, what is also very interesting, you'll find a Garden of Eden story in cultures as well. I was uh, taking a good look at some research that was, I was doing a couple years ago. There was actually a certain kind of pygmy tribe that was cut off, completely isolated from Western civilization. And one of the researchers who was an atheist actually talked to them and discovered that this pygmy tribe had at the very origins of their cultural religious history, they had a Garden of Eden story where one of the individuals was actually tempted to partake of the fruit of a tree. And when he did so, he began to suffer, and his wife would then begin to have pregnancy in pain. You find that very reminiscent of the Bible story as well. 
There was the story of a missionary who actually was trying to work with two different kinds of cultures in South America. There was war that was taking place between two different tribes. And finally, when peace was established during his time of ministry between these two different tribes, he was trying to ascertain why in the world was there um, this warring faction taking place. And what he ultimately discovered is that at the core of these tribes' history was a Garden of Eden story where the woman and the serpent were locked in a battle. And one tribe believed the other tribe was the descendants of the serpents, and the other tribe believed they were the descendants of the serpent. And so what began to take place was this war that took, uh, took years till finally, uh, you know, before it was finally overcome and done with. So you begin to find this all over the entire world. And what does it reveal? It reveals exactly what the Bible was teaching, that right after the worldwide flood, right after the Tower of Babel incident, the entire world separated and they begin to carry with them recent history, which then began to become war over time after generation after generation after generation generation when all was left was some kind of reminiscent picture of what the Bible clearly was telling us what history was all about amen the cool thing is we don't have to go to other religions to find out fragments of what the truth is we can go straight to God's Word amen and that's what we're gonna be doing tonight when you read the story about the flood, questions begin to come up in your mind. Questions like this. What in the world could have taken place that caused the entire world at one time to be destroyed by a worldwide flood? Well, it's very interesting. When you're reading the story of Genesis chapter 1 and you're going all the way to Genesis chapter 6, you begin to discover a very unique kind of history that started off very well but ended in disaster. The Bible describes the generations that were existing before the flood, that every thought of their heart was violence. In fact, the very fact that the Bible says very little about the people before the flood actually probably communicates that there were such wicked things taking place, it's better for it not to be mentioned. So much to the point where God had no other choice but to wipe out the entire world or all of human existence would have come to an end. So the question comes, wait a minute, what sort of things led up to this generation or generations that forced God to move in a certain direction that would bring about a worldwide flood where God himself had to activate a certain kind of judgment that was cleansing the world before it would utterly destroy humanity? Well, we're going to discover more about that. I want us to rewind and I want us to go back to the fall of mankind. When we take a good look at the first created man, what was his name, ladies and gentlemen? Adam, right? And what was his wife's name? Eve. The Bible describes this was the first man and the first woman, but because of their transgression, Adam fell into sin. He was then removed from the garden, and there outside the garden he made his home. Something interesting to note is that Adam had a son. What was Adam's son's name, ladies and gentlemen? Cain, right? And Cain was his firstborn son. He also had another son. What was that son's name? Abel, right? The Bible describes Cain was somebody who, was, uh, who worked in the field, and Abel was somebody who tended the sheep. Both one day were bringing their worship to God, and what happened is one was accepted because it was according to what God had given the instructions to Adam and Eve. However, Cain's was rejected, and in response to the method that God had set up to worship him, Cain was so angry, he actually slew his brother Abel, killed him, and then when God confronts him, what begins to take place is that Cain turns away from God. And this is where our story picks up. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4. Or Genesis chapter 4. Yes, please. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 16. Genesis chapter 4, starting with verse 16. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. 
In fact, if you want to rewind a little bit, you can go to verse 13. I want to show you something. And this is when God is confronting Cain about his sin. Look what the Bible says. We're going to start picking up now, okay? So hang on. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is what? Greater than I can bear. I want us to rewind a little bit. Go to verse 10, actually. This is when God confronts Cain. He says this. And he says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the ground, which has what? Opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer what? Yield its strength to you, a fugitive and a what? Vagabond, you shall be on earth. Notice this. God begins to confront Cain, and he says, because of your sin, you're going to be a vagabond, and you're going to be a fugitive. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what is a vagabond? One who wanders, or one that has no home. He would be a fugitive. The Bible then says, God then confronted Cain a little bit more and gave him a mark. Now, I want you to think about this. The Bible's essentially telling us that Cain was given a mark and that he would be a wanderer. Or in other words, he would never find rest. The Bible actually tells us in Revelation chapter 14 that those who worship the beast or his image have no rest. And so what you're seeing in the life of Cain is something that once was that will be repeated on a large-scale basis because they're rejecting the grace of God. Now I want you to see what happened when Cain actually leaves the presence of God. Go to verse 16. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, dwelt in the land of what? Nod. The word nod means wandering. In other words, outside the presence of God, there's only wandering, restlessness. And so Cain was experiencing this restlessness. Look what the Bible says next. And Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch. She built the city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad begat Mahuyah, and Mahuyah begat Methuselah, and Methuselah begot Lamech. Now watch verse 19. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name was one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Now I want you to pay attention to this. When Cain has a child, this child then gives birth to other children, which gives birth to other children, which gives birth to other children. Now, what is very interesting is you begin to hear all about, about what was taking place at this time. Cain's descendants begin to rapidly multiply and begin to fill the earth. Now, if you do a word study on the name of Cain's children, what you will discover is that Cain's children's name actually have very unique kinds of meaning. One of them means fugitive. Another means smitten of God. One means violence. And here you begin to see, because of one person's decision, he then produced an entire heritage or lineage of individuals that would be rebellious against God. Ladies and gentlemen, you may not realize this, but the decisions you make for Jesus Christ affects the future, generation after generation after generation after generation. And here you have in the story of Cain, someone who was rebellious about God, rebellious against God, and it led to an entire family, entire generations, then they themselves who would be rebellious against God. And so the earth was rapidly filling, filling with wicked people. At the same time, Adam began to have another son. His name was Seth, and the Bible says that men begin to call the name of the Lord. And so these two groups begin to develop. These people who were very wicked and very talented at the same time, who begin to fill the earth very quickly, very rapidly. And then you have Seth's descendants, which stayed away from those wicked people. But what began to take place over a period of time? They begin to intermingle, and all of a sudden, the righteousness that God had set up to repel and stop evil from completely taking over the planet was that was then itself completely overwhelmed and all of a sudden there was no more standards or guards against wickedness and the entire world began to just fall into darkness why because of one man's transgression can you imagine adam by the way adam lived 900 years plus this is where it starts to get very interesting adam was somebody who witnessed all of this. Can you imagine the guilt that he must have bore seeing his children rebel, 
seeing Cain kill his own son to see the generations and the grandchildren and all the wickedness that sprung up because of his one sin. Can you imagine Adam's attempt to try to reach all these people as an old man, several generations later, trying to communicate with these people, and there they see this old man, and they say, you're the cause for all of this problem. An old man walking through this planet that is full of wicked people, and here he is trying to convince them to go back to God. And can you imagine the sorrow and pain Kate or Adam must have felt? seeing all these children rebel, even seeing that godly line of Seth, Sethites that would come, eventually they themselves falling into transgression as well. There was still a godly line that was being preserved, but it was very minimal compared to everything else. And so Adam, like an old man, going throughout the various generations, the various people, the various tribes, trying to tell them about all the reasons to turn back to God, trying to point them back to the Garden of Eden that was still present, very visible, and yet everybody still rejecting him, angry at him. Can you imagine the remorse Adam must have felt trying to fix the wrongs that started because of his transgression. Oftentimes we see elderly people in the church. Many times elderly people will come up and they want to fix the problems because they themselves have seen years of change and they have seen the result of rebelling against God and they're turning to the young people and they're pleading with them only just to get shunned. And so Adam's experience was a hundredfold. Here he was, 900 years plus, as an old man, seeing generation after generation, after tribe, after group, after people, after children, begin to rebel and angry at God. The Bible says violence filled their hearts. Adam's struggle was intense. You can imagine, here he is, coming down to the end of his life, Almost 900 years on all he has seen is death and pain. Can you think about the remorse he must have felt? The Bible also describes that in the generation of those who came from Seth, minimal as it was, there was a particular individual. Take your Bible, go all the way to Genesis chapter 5, go to verse 18. You're going to see something very interesting. The Bible begins to describe something so unique. You're really going to need your Bible for this because you're going to see something very powerful right here. Genesis chapter 5, starting with verse 18. This is the lineage of the godly people that remained in the midst of all this rapidly multiplying wickedness that was taking place. Genesis chapter 5, starting with verse 18. Jared lived 100 year, 160 years and begat who? Enoch, another kind of Enoch. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were what? 962 years and he died. Now look at verse 21. Watch what the Bible says right here. Enoch lived 65 years, begot Methuselah, and after he begot Methuselah, Enoch what? Walked with who? God 300 years and had sons and daughters, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now let me ask you a question. How old is Enoch? Wrong. He's much older than that. Enoch is still alive, isn't he? Oh, yes, of course. I got you. Okay. Now I want you to pay attention to this because you're going to see something very extraordinary. The Bible begins to describe the genealogy of the godly people that were left in the time of this rapidly multiplying wickedness that would eventually bring about a worldwide destruction. Now follow me, you're going to see something, I promise you. And as the Bible is describing the genealogy of the righteous people, the Bible all of a sudden gives this kind of interruption. It hones and it magnifies on one of the righteous men and the Bible says his name was who? Enoch, and the Bible describes his connection with God as something that was very anthropomorphic, which is like um, almost a human kind of term describing something. And what he was saying, what the Bible actually says, that it was a walk with God. You know, it's very interesting. When you read the scriptures, the Bible actually talks about various people who served God, good people, righteous people, and it would say things like this, and so-and-so served God all the days of his life. 
or he'll say that so-and-so, you know, honored God all the days of his life. So-and-so worshipped God all the days of his life. But those who went beyond normal religious dynamics, those who actually had a special intimate connection with God, the Bible would describe their relationship in very unique terms. The Bible talks about Abraham, he was the friend of God. The Bible describes Moses, he saw God face to face. And these are terms you describing in a very unique way a relationship that went beyond just the normality of everybody else's relationship with God. And so here the Bible is honing in on one particular individual. His name was Enoch. And these were people that the Bible was already describing as righteous people. But Enoch was more than just righteous. He had a special kind of connection with God. The Bible says he walked with God. It almost communicates this idea that he was somebody who had this daily special kind of relationship with God that went beyond anybody else's relationship with God. Now the question is, are you simply following God, worshiping God, serving God, or are you walking with God? What kind of relationship do you have with God? And where do you want that relationship actually to be? Are you satisfied with where you're at? Or are you craving more? I really believe that in this study, you're going to discover some very interesting principles about this very unique man who did not see death, who the Bible actually says God took him, and this individual right now is alive and is in heaven as we speak. Yet the verse says so little, but you're going to realize the implications are so big. Take a good look at what one commentator said right here. From the lips of Adam, in other words, Adam lived even past the time of Enoch. He actually died shortly after the time of Enoch. From the lips of Adam, Enoch, he had learned the dark story of the fall and the cheering one of God's grace as seen in the promise, and he relied upon the Redeemer to come. But after the birth of his firstborn son Enoch, firstborn Enoch reached a higher experience. He was drawn into a closer relationship with God. He realized more fully his own obligations and responsibility as a son of God. And as he saw the child's love for its father, its simple trust in his protection, as he felt the deep yearning tenderness of his own heart for that firstborn son, he learned a precious lesson of the wonderful love of God to men in the gift of his son and the confidence which the children of God may repose in their heavenly father. The infinite, infinite unfathomable love of God through Christ became the subject of his meditations day and night. And with all the fervor of his soul, he sought to reveal that love to the people among who he dwell. The Bible tells us he was alive for 65 years, but when he had his son, he began to walk with God. In other words, something happened that boosted his walk with God or his relationship to God to an extraordinary level. And what was that? It was the birth of his own son. And as he looked upon this innocent child, a whole new picture of God began to emerge, one that he did not possess prior to this experience. In fact, the genealogy was describing all the righteous men who came from Seth. But what the Bible was also pinpointing right here is that Enoch's walk, his relationship with God, went to a whole new level right after his son was born. The implications are awesome when you begin to think about this. As Enoch looked upon his own self and saw the helplessness of this child, this baby that was totally dependent upon the arms of the parent, Enoch looked at this and recognized the love of God. And he was seeing how God looks upon his own children. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand something. The first step in, in reaching this powerful new connection with God is this. You need to ask God for a brand new picture of him. 
And as you ask for a brand new picture or a brand new revelation of God, one that you have not previously experienced, what you will begin to see is more and more a love that is part of heavenly grace. And as you look upon that deep love, your heart will be drawn to it. This principle that is so true in Scripture, love awakens love. And as you see a deeper, more clear, more accurate picture of the love of God seen in the character of God and in the righteousness of Christ, your heart will automatically, naturally be drawn to God in ways that you have not previously ex experienced. Just like Enoch, he received a whole new picture of God in the experience of this child. Now, I'm not saying just because you pray for that, all of a sudden you're going to give birth to a child. But what I am saying is God has many ways, many unique kinds of ways of revealing aspects of his character to you that you may not be aware of. And so when you begin to pray and you say, Lord, I want a new picture of you. I want a new revelation of who you are. God will surely grant this. And when he grants this to you, you will be taken a step further in your relationship with God. Well, what else does the Bible say about Enoch? More than this, this experience of his son being born. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 11, starting with verse 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see what? death and was not found because God had taken him for before he was taken he had this testimony that he pleased God you want to please God ladies and gentlemen this is how without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is in other words you must come to God believing that he is God one day I was preaching at this graduation for academy students, and I said, here are two things I want you to remember for the rest of your life. They said, what is that? I said, number one, there is a God. They said, amen. I said, number two, you are not him. I said, I want you to remember these two things for the rest of your life. There is a God, and you are not him. Enoch had this powerful experience, and part of this powerful experience was recognizing that God was God. And he accepted this, that there was a creator being that was looking after him and was wanting to go into a deeper walk with God. In fact, look what else the Bible says. And that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words, faith is believing God wants to do good for you. And Enoch had this kind of experience. He wanted to believe God had good things in store. And so when you're looking at this, unbelief is believing that God does not want to do good for you. Faith is believing God wants to do good for you. And so this is what Enoch's picture of God was. He had this experience, this, this extraordinary faith where he believed in the goodness of God. That part of God's nature was to always bless Enoch in some way, in some circumstance, even in some trial. The good of Enoch was something that God had in store always, and Enoch trusted in this. Can you say amen to that? Ladies and gentlemen, we need more than just a beautiful picture of God. We need a strong kind of faith, a faith that says, Lord, when I open up the Bible, I believe you're going to bless me. Oftentimes we'll open up the scripture and we'll say, Lord, if you're there, speak to me. And depending upon what we read, we'll say, well, Wow, I just read how the Amalekites were destroyed. I better go to the book of Psalms today. Right? You see, oftentimes we'll say, God, if you're there, bless me. But you see, Enoch's faith was much different. He says, be God, because I know you're there is why I'm going to open up the scriptures. See, oftentimes we need to go back to this verse right here that says that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That God wants to bless you, and he will bless you if you are seeking after him. And Enoch had this experience, the Bible tells us. He had an extraordinary experience where he believed that he was seeking one that had his best in mind. Can you say amen to that? The Bible also teaches something else about Enoch. Take your Bible, go to the book of Jude. We're going to find out what else was part of Enoch's experience. Go to the book of Jude. Jude is a very interesting book. It's more like a page. The page of Jude, right? There's no chapters. We're going to Jude, starting with verse 14. 
Jude is right before the book of Revelation. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. We're learning that Enoch had a brand new picture of God. We're learning that Enoch had faith. The third thing I want, to pay, I want you to pay attention is this. Take a good look at verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from who? Adam prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with what? 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all those who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. There is something that you need to pay attention to and that is this. Enoch believed in the advent of Jesus. Amen? The Bible pinpoints it right here. In fact, this is the first indication of somebody besides Adam that had a knowledge that God was going to come back with his angels, actually honing in specifically on the second coming. Enoch was somebody who you could even say was an Adventist. Well, what's an Adventist? People who are vegetarians? No. That may be the case, especially here in Loma Linda. But an Adventist in its essence is one who simply believes in the second coming of Jesus and is excited about it. And if you believe in the second coming of Jesus and you're excited about it, guess what? You're an Adventist. Amen? You believe in the second advent of Jesus. And so Enoch had this experience, and this was his experience. His experience was he believed in the second coming of God. The Bible says he prophesied that the Lord will come with 10,000 of his saints. Enoch had a second coming experience. And Enoch was living at a time where he knew destruction was about to come upon the world. And what God revealed to him at that end of time, or at that moment, was that, hey, there's actually a bigger picture to all of this, that the Lord is going to come back in an extraordinary way, what is, what is going to be one of the greatest events of human history. Ladies and gentlemen, for those who are living in this special time, we are living at very exciting, pivotal moments. There are things that are happening in our world today where it's not just religionists that are recognizing something's very wrong with our planet. It's not just um, people who, who love to go to church. It's not, not, just not sociologists who can see something's wrong with society. It's also biologists. Even scientists recognize something is seriously wrong with this planet. It's no longer working as it once did. There are unusual patterns starting to develop, random things that are taking place, cataclysmic events, catastrophes that are happening left and right to the place it almost becomes normal. In fact, take a good look at that right there, and what you see right there is something very unique. This is something that is very legitimate and very credible. What you are seeing right here is something called the doomsday clock. Now, at first, it may seem like something to you that seems a little bit extreme, something some fanatical group probably came up with. Actually, the group that came up with this is the, this is very interesting, it is the Atomic Bulletin of Scientists. What this is, is a ragtag team of various kinds of scientists, starting with Albert Einstein, who was one of the founders of this group, now that now actually has Stephen Hawking on it, individuals that have come together and said, wait a minute, based upon all the things that are taking place in our world today, how close is this world to destruction? As of 2012, they have placed the clock five minutes to midnight. Ladies and gentlemen, these aren't quack scientists. These are reputable, credible scientists, well-known individuals who are taking into account all the things that are happening politically, all the things that are happening with technology, all the things that are happening with the climate, with biology, all the things that are happening in the world, the, the instability, and putting this all together, they're comprising this, this clock, and with this clock, based upon where it's at, determines how close this is, and when midnight strikes, that represents the destruction of the world, how close this world really is to destruction. Most of the individuals on this, um, in this organization are not religionists, they are atheists. And yet they themselves said, as far as 2012 goes, we are five minutes to midnight. Why did they say that? This is the most current up to update right here. 
The challenge is to rid the world of nuclear weapons, harness nuclear power, and to meet the nearly inexorable climate disruptions from global warming are complex and interconnected. In the face of such complex problems, it is difficult to see where the capacity lies to address these challenges. Political processes seem wholly inadequate. The potential for nuclear weapons use in regional conflicts in the Middle East, Northeast Asia, and South Asia are alarming. Safer nuclear reactor designs need to be developed and built, and more stringent oversight, training, and attention are needed. By the way, this is 2012. They're planning to update it 2014. Prevent future disasters. The pace of technological solutions to address climate change may not be adequate to meet the hardships that large-scale disruption of the climate portends. This is very remarkable when you begin to really think about this. These aren't individuals who stand on the corner and say the end of the world is near. These are reputable scientists, individuals that write textbooks for our public schools. And yet here they're saying the world is starting to head towards this very alarming state. Something's very wrong with this planet. And they're able to identify a series of problems. Ladies and gentlemen, you can go straight to the Bible and you can recognize what the scripture's already saying, amen? You don't need to open up Google front page, just read Matthew 24. And there you find an exact, accurate record of all the things that are happening in the world today. One of my friends one day was preaching, and he was preaching about the second coming, talking about all the signs of the time, the things that are happening in the world today. A man stands up and he says, I don't want to hear that. I have a problem with hecklers, but this was a heckler. And this individual says, you know what, I have heard this before. My parents were saying the same exact thing. You guys are always saying this, the world is going to end. It's not going to end. So my friend says something very interesting. He says, sir, you are actually one of the signs of the nearness of Christ. <laughs> and the man says, what? He said, absolutely. And then he says, let me show you. He took him to the book of Peter. And there the Bible says, scoffers will come in the last day and they will say, where is the promise of your coming? And the man, when he read that, he sat down, kept his mouth shut for the rest of the series. <laughs> if there's ever a time that people are saying, we've heard this before, that's today. And the very fact that's happening is a clear indication of what Peter says. Look, this is going to be one of the signs of the second coming. People are going to say, ah, this is not going to happen. We've heard this from our parents. Recognize that's a sign. Amen? And as Christians, the Bible tells us, we need to watch and pray. We need to be aware of everything. Now, we don't need to go quick and be fanatics, or we don't need to be extremists and try to run into caves or try to be doomsday prepper, live in some bunker, store up a pot full of peas and beans to survive the end of time. But the Bible does tell us, be watchful, be prayerful, study the scriptures, understand what is taking place. Because the end of the world is near, and we don't have to be afraid of the end of the world, amen? Because all the end of the world means is that Jesus is coming back for us. Can you say hallelujah to that? And this is something Enoch believed. He believed that the second coming was going to take place in an extraordinary, powerful way. He had a vision of it, and he saw the Lord come with 10,000 of his saints. And that's why we've got to send this message to the entire world. We are closer to the second coming than any generation prior to this. We are just steps and seconds, moments away for that great event that's going to be taking place when Jesus comes back to take his people home. Amen? And we know what the scriptures are teaching about that. We know about all the signs, and we need to know more and more clearly what the Bible is saying because deceptions are going to get stronger. They're going to get very, very strong. All sorts of things about the second coming. It was the first coming of Jesus that really threw people off because what happened is that individuals relied upon the Pharisees and Sadducees for instruction about how the Messiah would show up. And this is why when he showed up in a very quiet, humble manner, they were thrown off. And here we are, we're living at the second, second coming time, and the teachers of the world are saying that the Messiah is going to come in such a secret way, he's going to rapture people, right? 
I love what I said one day in a seminar. I said, the secret rapture is so secret, not even the Bible knows about it. <laughs> Amen? Yes. Not even the Bible knows about it. It's that secret. But the Bible lets us know that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be an extraordinary, powerful event. Amen? And with that will come the great resurrection. Heard this wonderful story one day of this lady, this older lady. She loved to go to church on Sabbath. She'd be the kind of lady that would get there at 9.15, right when the deacons got there. She'd get there. She'd wear the exact same Sabbath outfit. It was blue. Past the knees over here. She'd come up with her bonnet, and she would sit exactly right in that place right there. And every Saturday, she would show up for church early. Everyone knew this woman as somebody who was always there every Sabbath morning early. And so the deacons had to make sure they would get there early, not at 9.30 at Sabbath school. And so what happens is everyone is starting to come into church, and there she is right there. It's Sabbath school time, and she's just sitting there waiting for everything to start. This woman has been coming to church for several years. Everyone knows who she is. What happens is, as everyone is waiting for someone to come up to begin the Sabbath school instruction, the doors slam open. A man in a trench coat begins walking. Everyone's staring at him as he's stomping his feet. He comes all the way up to the front. Everyone's looking, who is this? Taps the mic, <coughs> clears his voice, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, just want to let you know something. I am Jesus. And I have come back for my people. And everyone is shocked, gasping for breath. They're thinking, who, who, who's this? Who let this man in here? And this man here is announcing himself as Jesus. And as this man is uh, pontificating on why he is the Messiah and how he has returned for his people, everyone doesn't know what to do. Some people are looking for the elders. Other people are looking for the pastor. And they're all gone. And this man here is up there saying all sorts of things. And all of a sudden, that elderly woman stands up. She stands up, and she says, Are you really Jesus? And everyone's shaking their head, thinking, Oh, no, she's been going to church too long, sitting in the exact same pew. And the woman says, Are you really Jesus? And the man said, Of course. And the woman says, Then you must love the Bible as much as I do. And he says, Of course, I wrote the Bible. And then she says, could you read for me a very special verse? And he says, okay. And she says, take your Bible, go to 1 Thessalonians. And the man's thumbing through the Bible, and she says, oh, it's in the New Testament. And so as they're going to 1 Thessalonians, she says, I want you to read a special verse for me. And so she's going to 1 Thessalonians. She says, chapter 4. And so he's going to chapter 4. And then she says, I want you to start with verse 15, and you, could you please read that? And the man clears his throat. <clears> throat. He says, all right, this is the word that I have written. He begins to read. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that's me, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And all of a sudden, he looks up to that woman, and that woman's no longer smiling. And she says this, I didn't hear no shouts. She says, I didn't hear no trumpet. And she says, my dead husband has not risen from the grave. You ain't Jesus. <laughs> and the man, realizing he was caught, closed the Bible, calmly walked out, never to be seen again. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we need to know what the Scripture is teaching. Amen? Deceptions are going to increase more and more to the point the Bible says, if possible, could deceive the very elect. And so that's why we need to understand the times that we are living in. God isn't calling us to be extremists, but he is calling us to be watchful. And there are events that are happening more and more. And as we see consistency in the events, we can then take hope. Wait a minute. This is one of the things Jesus pointed out. 
Enoch was somebody who loved the second coming, who preached about the second coming. And if you want to be someone who's like Enoch, then do the same. Amen? This was Enoch's experience. The Bible also tells us another thing about Enoch's life. The Bible says he had a son. And it was after the son was born, he began to walk with God. Do you know what this son's name was? Methuselah, right? Methuselah was a very interesting individual. Some commentators point out that his name means in Hebrew, standard Hebrew text, when he dies, it shall come. We do know that he lived all the way till the time of the flood, and he was part of that group of godly men that helped build the ark with Noah, which is very remarkable because it says more about Enoch than it really does Methuselah, and that is this. Enoch lived his life in such a way and he so fashioned his family's development that they participated in end time events. Enoch was developing a generation that would herald the end of the world at that time. Oftentimes we're raising our family just to live in the moment. And there's none of this end time framework that is part of our family's development. But Enoch was somebody who prayed and hoped and took care of his son and raised up him up in such a way that when it came to build the ark of safety at the end of time, at that moment, he would be a participant. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got to raise our family up that they themselves will be part of this ark called the church. Can you say amen to that? And this is something God wants you to raise your family to become a part of. Whether they be doctors or lawyers or engineers or pastors, whatever their profession may be, we need to raise our family so that they understood that the cause of building up the church is one they need to participate in. And this is how Enoch trained his son so that as his son grew older and was walking with God, he was somebody who understood the times and he built that ark with Noah. You know, oftentimes told myself, when I have kids, ten of them, <laughs> an army of an elves, this army of an L, regardless of the career that they have and educational choices they make, by God's grace, I will spare no cent, no moment to see that they have the greatest spiritual opportunities available. And if that means I have to give up the boat so that they can go to Adventist education, Christian education, I will pay that amount. If that means there's a mission trip that's taking place and it costs a little bit of money, I'm going to spare that, I'm going to give that money so they get to participate in an experience where they're reaching out to other people. I will spare no cent because I want to see every one of my children participating in the events that are taking place. And so when we're thinking about family and the future opportunities that are going to be bounding, we need to ask ourselves, are we raising a family that is going to be ready for these times? Or raising a family that's only going to live in the present tense that belong to the world. And as soon as the pressure is gone, they will go right back into the world. And they will be some of the worst persecutors of those who are still in the church. Enoch was somebody who had this. We understand that Enoch was somebody who had a new picture of God. We understand that Enoch had this powerful kind of faith. We understand that Enoch preached and believed the second coming. And the next thing we need to understand about Enoch is that he raised a godly family for the times that he was living in. And these were all things that helped Enoch become the individual that he was. To the point the Bible even says, he walked with God and was not, for God took him, so heavenly minded, yet and still no, not losing his practicality on earth, but communing with God more and more and reaching out to the people of the world. Enoch left his influence upon a dying world. Ladies and gentlemen, what kind of influence will you leave upon this world? Will it be one where your presence is missed? Or where there'll be a celebration because you're gone? Enoch was somebody that left a powerful mark upon the antediluvian world. You know what's very interesting? 
There has been various kinds of men and women all over the world, variety of backgrounds that have had relationships with God that is powerful, and the glow of God is present upon their face. Individuals who, when they share, you can see the love of Jesus flowing out of them. In India, there is a particular legend, a story, a real story that has been surrounded now by a lot of superstition, even a lot of Hinduism. It's the story of a Sikh man. His name is Sadhu Sundar Singh. This individual, the young age of 14, grew up in a traditional Sikh home. Wanting to impress his friends one day, he took a Bible and burned it, thinking that would really impress his friends and gain some kind of notoriety, some kind of reputation in that society or community. But what happens is, one day as he went home, he had this strange tension in his heart he could not resolve. As he was in his home, one night, he had this experience where he believed God spoke to him. God talked to him and said, why do you keep denying me? And he gave his heart to God at that moment. And he was somebody who was baptized. And when he was baptized, he was renounced by his family for his commitment to Christ. But this man decided he had just had this powerful experience with God. He could not deny Jesus anymore. He then began to travel all over the world, even attended seminary for a brief moment. This individual had, didn't have all the truth. He actually had some things that were really off. But he began to share the love of Jesus everywhere he went. And no one was able to tame this individual. He wouldn't wear Western-style clothes. He actually dressed in traditional Indian garments. And he began to share with Buddhists and with Hindus and with Sikhs about the love of God and about the scriptures. Oftentimes, he was persecuted, thrown into pits, people expecting him to die. Sometimes they tied him to stakes at night and would leave him there for days while he was starving. In the middle of the night, the rope came undone and there was always food present. He'd eat the food and then, not to startle his, uh, cap, uh, those who were his uh, prison guards, he put his hand back on the post and somehow his hands were bound again. This was an individual who many people would say, well, he was oftentimes walking around in the forest. They would see wild animals around him. Now, all of this, we don't know how much of it is true. We do know one thing, and that this individual was somebody who was sharing the love of God and was gaining a reputation in all of India. One of the very last things that are recorded about him is this. He began to cross over this Tibetan mountaintop where he would go witness to several Buddhists. And he never came down. Legends say that this individual was translated. We have no idea if that's true. There was no body that was found. The Buddhists on the other side never said, he never came to us. But he disappeared. It's very remarkable, ladies and gentlemen. There are people all over, the God, all over the world who are walking with God, who are following God to the light that they have, who are loving Jesus and sharing the wonderful news of the Bible. Their lives have been so transformed by the love of God, they crave more and more of who God is. Take a good look at this powerful quote right here. Fate has not woven its meshes around any, about any human being so firmly that he need remain helpless. You may think to yourself, circumstances have chained you. Sin has chained you, and you can't break free. And in uncertainty, opposing circumstances should create a firm determination to overcome them. Amen? The breaking down of one barrier will give greater ability and courage to go forward. Press with determination in the right direction, and circumstances will be your helpers and not your hindrances. Be ambitious for the master's glory to cultivate every grace of character. In every phase of your character building, you are to please God. This you may do for Enoch pleased him, though living in a degenerate age. And ladies and gentlemen, we are living in a worse age. 
Now look what said what is said next in this book. And there are Enochs in this our day. Ladies and gentlemen, each one of us have a privilege and opportunity to walk with God. The amazing thing, the Bible says so little about Enoch, yet the implications are so powerful that are there. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. The amazing part of this whole story is this. This was somebody who Adam lived to see. Adam was somebody who had seen so much death and decay, who came from such a beautiful origin. And seeing all of this, near the end of his life, he came across one of his posterity, a child by the name, a man by the name of Enoch. The Bible says something very remarkable about Enoch. It says he walked with God. The only time you hear that phrase, walk, is with God and Adam. The most amazing part of this is that Adam actually lived long enough to see somebody in one of the final generations regain the communion with God that he himself lost. Adam witnessed one more thing in the life of Enoch. Adam was somebody who was given the death sentence. He lived long enough to see one man relieved of the death sentence. Adam was somebody who saw the face of Christ. And he lived long enough to see the life of one man who would be the first human being who would enter into heaven and see the face of God again. Ladies and gentlemen, Enoch's life was hope for Adam's life. Adam lived long enough to see that there was still hope for humanity and he saw it in the life of one man by the name of Enoch. And as Adam closed his eyes, he knew that there could be more like him. Ladies and gentlemen, each one of us has the privilege to go beyond where we are at with God. We have the privilege of walking with God in an extraordinary way, to commune with God in a way that we have never done before, to experience him to have a life that blesses the world and prepares it for what is coming. Every person here, regardless of your circumstance and background and sins, ladies and gentlemen, has the exact same opportunity as Enoch does. Ladies and gentlemen, God is asking us a question he asked Adam, where are you? Where are you at with your walk with God and your relationship with Him? What's your connection to God? What has that been like? God is calling us and He is offering to us the experience that Enoch had, a life where we can experience the beauty of heaven, not just in heaven, but here on earth, where every day we can wake up commune with our Creator and desire more of His beauty and His love. Ladies and gentlemen, regardless of where you are at in your spiritual condition, regardless of how impure you may feel or how distant you may feel from God, God is calling you into the same experience that Enoch had. How many people say, Lord, I want to be like Enoch. I want to walk with you. I want to know you for who you are. I want to taste heaven. God is willing to bless you. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we need you, God. As we confess, Lord, we are but sinners. 
and we have no power in of ourselves to walk with you, God. But we are praying and we are pleading, God, that you would give us the same experience that Enoch had. Not in some trance or some vision, but Lord, in a daily walk with you. We want to pray and ask, God, that our relationship with you would grow stronger and stronger, Lord, where every day we would taste the taste what heaven is all about. We would dwell in a heavenly atmosphere. Jesus, I just pray for those who are struggling, those who feel that they are trapped and in chains. Lord, may they feel the love of God. May they sense your grace for them tonight and the call to their own heart, inviting them closer and closer to you. Jesus, thank you that the life of Enoch still preaches in this planet today. We're going to walk with you as we leave the building tonight. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.